I can ensure you I'm not, in fact, the man. <laughs> Probably the furthest thing from it, but they made me pick my walk-up song, and if I'm going to walk up to the plate this morning, I want Aloe Black telling me that I'm the man, all right? So don't worry, though. I'll get some humble pie this morning because we are in the book of James together, walking through hardball, and man, he hits it hard this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like to... Um, get a dose of humility this morning, and so it won't take me long to realize that I'm not, in fact, the man of the world. I'm not, in fact, even the man of my life. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Jake Davis. I'm the college and creative pastor here at Mountaintop, and I'm thrilled to get to share with you this morning from the book of James, uh, our fourth installment from the fourth chapter of James. And uh, let me just say, before we get started, all right, before we dive into this text, if, uh, if you walk away with bruised toes this morning... It wasn't my feet that stepped on them, all right? This is the book of James. These are his words. I'm just a messenger, all right? So don't shoot the messenger because this is tough truth. This is tough love from the half-brother of Jesus. And if he spent his life with the man that we follow, then I think we should, should, you know, pay some credence to his words this morning. And so even though they're tough, I would ask that you would lean in. And I don't want you to get too comfortable as you break in those new chairs uh, because uh, the book of James has some tough truth for us this morning in chapter 4. All right, so let's just get started, all right, because there's a lot packed in here. There's a lot that uh, James wants to tell us this morning. And uh, I'm titling this message, The War for Your Heart, because... What's happening here is that James is going to, you know, we've seen throughout the series that uh, one of the things that he likes to to do is like use these word pictures um, and these analogies uh, and kind of use those to help explain the truth that he's trying to get across. And he doesn't stop here in chapter four. He uses a lot of like war, warfare imagery here, battle imagery. And so we're talking about the war for our our hearts this morning. And so we're just going to jump in to verse one, James chapter one says, uh, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? So it seems like the church of James that he's writing to here, they're having some disputes, um, and, and James is, is trying to help them realize why they're fighting with each other, why there's this infighting going on in the church that he's writing to. It says, uh, do they not come from your cravings? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members, in, in your bodies? Is it not the things inside of you that are causing these conflicts between you? And he, he continues on, he says uh, that you, you desire and you, you do not have, so you kill and you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you wage war. And he's, he's speaking to the specific context of this church that is full of uh, uh, Jews who have converted to Christianity. They begin following Jesus, and they're having these disagreements about what it looks like to be in community with each other and to live in a Greek context and have uh, this world around them that they're trying to deal with. Like, what does it look like for us to be followers of Jesus in a world that has fallen and far from him? And that's not much different than our context, right? That, That we're a group of people who are just trying to do our best to follow Jesus in a world that is far from him. So what does that look like for us, and, and how do we, how do we uh, orient our lives in a way that we are sure that what we're doing is following Jesus and not the world? So James makes it uh, pretty clear a few things here. In the war for our hearts, we're at war with each other. And uh, I don't know if you've been around, 
in America over the last few years, we certainly seem to be at war with each other. Can't seem to agree about much of anything. Uh, pretty loose with our words with each other. Um, we're at war with each other. And this even happens inside the church, right? Even inside uh, committed communities of, of believers, we, we find ourselves sometimes disagreeing and, and having conflict. And James is like, well, where does that come from? Why, why are you guys at war with each other? He makes it pretty clear. It's because we're at war with ourselves. He teaches us, though, later in the passage, in verse 11 and 12, what we're, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves when we're at war with each other. Because what is essentially happening to the church in Jerusalem is that there's an enemy in the camp, right? If we're using warfare, warfare te- uh, terminology this morning, there's an enemy in the camp of the church. They're, they're at war with each other, and this, this common enemy they have amongst each other, and they're trying to get rid of it. And so he tells them that when they, when they conduct in this type of conflict, that this is how they're supposed to conduct themselves. Verse 11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And he wants to make it really clear that when you judge someone else who's in the community of faith with you, you're not just judging them, that you're judging the law that has saved them. You're judging the the judge that has saved them. And he makes it really clear in the next verse. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? I mean, he just gets right into it, right? He's like, who are you? What position do you hold? What kind of authority do you have to judge your neighbor? So why are you doing it? The wars that are happening among us, in our world, in our churches, in the American church, they're a product of the wars within us, because we're at war with ourselves. And so the the wars among us are the products of the wars within us, right? He says, like, you want and you can't get, so you kill. You covet and you can't have. And so you, you war and you fight with each other. And so this morning, if we're, if we're going to stop warring with each other, we've got to do some heart warfare and begin to figure out why we're at war with ourselves so that we can stop being at war with each other and at war with this world. And finally, the, the last kind of territory that we're fighting for this morning is that we're at war with our flesh. And so if, if being at war with each other is that we have an enemy in the camp, uh, being at war with ourselves is that uh, we have this this uh, enemy within, right? If we're at war with our flesh, then we, have, uh, we live kind of behind enemy lines, right? So what that means is that like, we've been given the grace of God that has revealed to us our sinfulness, and, and we're trying to walk in faith following Jesus, but we still are attached to our flesh, and so we kind of operate from behind enemy lines, Because every day, our flesh is at war with the spirit that God has given us. Every day, we want to live into our flesh. And it tears us away from the desire that we also have to live in the spirit that God has given us. And ultimately, this results in one super damaging decision that we make. 
we make the choice to give our hearts away to idols, to other gods, status, success, relationships. We give our hearts away to them. And James tells us to beware. In the first few vo- verses here, he is, he's using a lot of words about what it looks like to desire things and to find pleasure in things and, and, and how those things uh, bring us into conflict with each other. And the words that he, he is using in, in the original language, the Greek, are very important because they, they kind of highlight for us what it is that we give our hearts away to. And these are what the Greek words mean. I'm not going to bore you with all of them this morning. But this is what they mean. And uh, they happen to all start with P's in English. So, you know, as a pastor, I'm like super happy about that. All right? It's really easy to remember. Here's the things that we give our hearts to. Pleasures. We just, man, we just want to be satisfied. We just want to feel good. And so we give our hearts away to, to these pleasures that, in, that entice us, these desires of our hearts. Passions. It's, it's like pleasures, but it's a little bit different. It's, it's the things that, that we, that we kind of spend our time doing. If you want to know where your heart is, show me how you spend your time your passions, and, and we give our, our hearts to our passions. And, and I'm not saying that all pleasures and all passions are bad things. No, God gives good and perfect gifts. He, he gives pleasure and he gives passions. But when they become the driving force of our life, they pull our heart away from their original design. They pull our hearts away from the actual thing that will only ever satisfy them. Our pursuits so, like, the word that he uses in Greek is about, like, the things that we have zeal for. The things that, that we kind of give our, our lives to, like our careers and our status and our station in life. We give ourselves to our careers. And listen, I'm, saying, I'm not saying that, like, don't, don't do good at your job, Right? Give yourself to your job, and, 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 and everything you do, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. But if that passion or that pursuit begins to become the thing that drives your heart, you're going to end up off the path. He talks about these petty fights and conflicts that we're in. Oh boy, do we have a tendency to give our hearts to petty arguments. Like when we lay our head down at night on the pillow, we think about all of the ways that we're right and those people we're in arguments with are wrong. We think about all the things that, that consume our thoughts during the day because we're just, we're infighting. We're having all of these petty fights about politics and theology and, uh, you know, the, the, the world and issues and hot topics and we have all of these petty fights that we get in and we just give our hearts away, freely give our hearts away to them and give them position in our life that they don't have the authority to, to, to be granted 
and, and they don't have the ability to fulfill us if we keep investing in them. Possessions. We always want more. There's never enough. If I could just get this, or if I could just get that, and then you get that, and you want the next thing, right? We give our hearts away to possessions. Property. He uses a word uh, when he's talking about conflict that talks about these conflicts that we get in that are basically just disputes over property and privilege. Like, we believe that we have some sort of property that we have to defend. Like, this is our territory. We're going to defend it. And we just give our hearts away to that. We become more concerned about culture wars than we do about actually sharing the gospel. We become more concerned about maintaining status quo than we do about following the Spirit of God. And we, man, we, we just think we're entitled to so much, don't we? We have so much privilege. We think that everything we have, we've earned, and so we have to defend it, and so we give our hearts away to it, hoping that that thing that we've been privileged with will save us. It won't. But we just give our hearts away. A word that runs all throughout this passage is heat on. And James warns us not to give ourselves away to pleasures. And it's where we get the term hedonism, the modern term hedonism. It's a Greek philosophy that was around during the time of this church, and James warned them to be super wary of it, and it's still around today. And I would say it's kind of the dominating philosophy of at least America today, but I would say the world as well. And it's this. Hedonism is the theory that finding pleasure and satisfying your selfish desires is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. Doesn't that sound like our world? Just do what feels right to you. And not, don't worry about the truth. Just what's your truth? Just do whatever makes you feel good. Satisfy yourself. Don't worry about other people. Just look out for numero uno. James is like, this is not the way of a follower of Jesus. We don't give our hearts to just satisfy our selfish desires and our own need for pleasure. It's not the proper aim of life. In verse 2, he says, You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you wage war. What you want, you can't have, and so you fight for it. And this word that he uses for, for cannot obtain is a really interesting word. It's tunkano. In archery, tunkano is what they would say when Greek archers would shoot a bow, an arrow, and that arrow would land right in the bullseye. Tunkano. He hit the mark. That archer hit the mark. And so in this passage, James uses the negative version of that word. You cannot hit the mark. You're incapable of tunkano. 
The thing that you want, that you give your life for, you give your heart to, you get it, and it doesn't fulfill you. Because you can't actually hit the mark. See, on this target, there's no bullseye. You can shoot a hundred arrows at this target, and you won't hit the bullseye because it's covered up. If you continue to give your life for your pleasures and your passions and your pursuits and your, your privilege and your, and your property and these petty fights that we find ourselves in, you'll never hit the mark. Because your aim's off. This is uh, the exact opposite word of harmatano which you might be familiar with, harmatia is the word that we use for sin. When, it's, when that's in, in scripture uh, and, and they translate it, they translate it sin. But it's another archery term that literally just means to miss the mark. And so what it means to, to sin is to miss the mark that God has for us, to live outside of his design, to, to do things that are against his will and his heart. James is like, this is what you're doing. You're just foolishly, like frivolously, Shooting your arrows, trying to find worth and identity and purpose in things that will never hit the mark. Because you're so concerned about pleasure, and you think that pleasure is the proper aim of life, but your aim is just incorrect, because really what, what Jesus is calling to us to is to embrace that perhaps it's about purpose, instead of pleasure. That what Jesus is inviting us to when he's inviting us to following him is to find our purpose in him. To leave our pleasure to the side and just say, I, I want a new purpose in life. God, would you give me a new purpose to, to follow your son? And what we'll find in this book of James, in this chapter four, is that that takes an incredible amount of humility. And so James is not only arguing for purpose over pleasure, but he's also arguing for humility over hedonism. Because ultimately, hedonism is pride, right? It's arrogance. That like my selfish desires are more important than yours, that what I want is my main aim in life. It's very self-centered. Humility, the way of Jesus, calls us to something entirely different. And what's interesting is that we have these conflicts in our lives and, and in our communities. And they, they tear us up inside because we're giving our hearts away to things that won't fulfill them. And James, in the middle of this, begins talking about prayer. And when I was first studying this passage, I was like, I don't, James, I don't know why we're on this like tangent about prayer. In, in, in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. These things that you want, I'd give them to you, but you don't ask for them. And then you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on your passions. If we'd ask, he'd give it to us. And then sometimes we ask and our motives are all wrong. We just want to continue to fulfill ourselves. And so check this out. This is what we do. We don't ask God to provide what we need. We ask him to fulfill our greed. Whew. 
I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I'm, this thing that I think I need, it's actually just feeding the greed in my life. Because listen, it, if we were so good about determining what we need, wouldn't we already be satisfied? If we're so good at discerning our own needs, then shouldn't we be satisfied by now? Shouldn't we be just like off of this hamster wheel of life where it's just like I get and it doesn't fulfill me, and so I go chase something else and it doesn't fulfill me? If we're so good at discerning our own needs, why are we still playing this game? See, I, I believe that, that prayer, it's not about bending, our, uh, bending God's will to ours. It's about bending our will to God's. It's not about getting things from God. It's about getting God into us. The purpose of prayer is to make us more like the one we're praying to, to conform our desires to his heart. And listen, this doesn't mean we serve a God who doesn't give good gifts or who wants us to suffer and plays tricks on us to keep us from finding pleasure. No, actually, the exact opposite is true. James 1.17 tells us that. We learned this verse earlier in the series. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So God's not just up there like trying to trick you. He's not the one who put the block on the bullseye. As I, I never played baseball uh, because I found that a game where you fail 70% of the time was just too much for my mental capacity. Um, I cried a lot, and I know there's no crying in baseball, so I quit. <laughs> quit instead. But I loved basketball. It was my jam. I loved basketball. Um, I'm not saying I'm good at it. A few of you in here can attest to that. But I love it. And I played it my whole life. Um, I'm in love with the game. And uh, sometimes you are just, you can't miss. And I'm, I'll admit, this like never happens for me, but I've heard about it from other guys. Um, you just can't miss. Like, everything you're shooting is going in the hoop, and it's like, woo, I'm on fire, I'm feeling it, right? And then there's some nights you come out, and it's like, woo, I can't hit the broad side of a barn, man. If the basket was like the size of the Atlantic Ocean, I'd still be missing it. Even Steph Curry, man, the best shooter in, in history, has nights like this where he just like he goes four for 21, right? And in basketball, they have this saying, that on nights like that, it feels like there's a lid on the basket. It feels like there's a lid on the hoop. There's no lid on the hoop. Your aim's just off. I feel like a lot of us live our lives like this, that we have this, like, lid on the basket, and we, like, shake our fist at God. We're like... Why'd you put a lid on the back? Everything is against me. Why, don't, why aren't you for me? And the whole time we're aiming at the wrong hoop. We're the ones to blame because we keep aiming at a target we can't hit. And then we want to blame God for it. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Do we really believe that? 
Do you trust that God gives us every good and perfect thing? That everything good and perfect in your life is directly because of him and not because of your own power? Because here's what that means. If we don't have it, either God is not good or we didn't need it. If we don't have it, either God isn't good, and you can certainly make that conclusion, or maybe you just didn't need it, and you're actually a lousy judge of what you actually need. Do you trust that God wants to give you every good and perfect thing? Maybe it's because we trust ourselves more than we trust that God can actually fulfill us. And this is crazy, because it's like we believe that we know our desires better than the one who designed us does. This would be like going to the gas station every day with your car that calls for unleaded fuel and putting diesel in it. I mean, it would work for a while, but it would be doing irreparable damage to the car. And if you were to take that car, broken as it was, to the manufacturer and be like, dude, what's the problem? He'd be like, well, you were putting the wrong thing in it. And so, yeah, it worked, but you broke the car. We do this with God, right? Like, no, God, I got it. I'll figure it out. I know what I need. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go earn it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it on my own. And then we, like, come to God broken, like, what the? Why'd you design me this way? Why'd you make me this way with this pleasure and desire, like this need for, like these desires in my heart, this need for pleasure? Why'd you make me this way if I couldn't fulfill it? And God's just like, well, you're putting the wrong thing in. That's where I'm supposed to go. I'll fulfill all those things. I'm the greatest pleasure, passion, pursuit. I'll free you from your petty fights. And you want property? How about eternal privilege? How about a a place in the family of God? You don't need the stuff of this world. It's frivolous. It's passing. Maybe, maybe we should just trust that the giver of every good and perfect gift will actually do what he said he's going to do. And here's the thing. we, We can't imagine losing ourselves we can't imagine losing this control of our lives because that that couldn't possibly be gain right jesus says twice in the book of matthew 16 25 is the second time he says it if you try to hang on to your life you'll lose it but if you give it up for my sake you'll save it and that's the invitation this morning to give up your life for God. And maybe you have a chance to save it. Or you just keep asking yourself this question. Do we trust ourselves more than we trust in God's ability to fulfill us? Who are you going to trust? James isn't done. I know it's like, whoa, okay. 
we're here today. James is not done. We're only on verse 4. And he goes in and he says, You unfaithful people, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world, living this way, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We, we have to choose. We can't play this game where we're going back and forth between God and the world or God and our pleasures. We have to choose. Or we'll make ourselves an enemy of God. Or, or maybe you suppose, James says, that's in vain that the scripture says that, that God yearns over the spirit which he had made to dwell in us. God put a spirit in us that dwells in us, that longs for him, and so he's jealous for us until we place that back into him, invest that back into him. And we walk around with our heart split into pieces, handing it out to the highest bidder. And we have these divided allegiances in our life, right? Between God and ourself. We can't, we can't decide who we're going to trust. Between God and the world, we can't decide who has the answers for what's going on in our life. And so sometimes we're like, well, I don't know, sometimes the philosophy of the world kind of sounds kind of nice. It does, sounds nice to feel good and do what I like. Maybe there is some credence to that. And so we, we abandon the truth of God. And then finally, God and Satan. Because we have an enemy. And this is the game he plays. This is his battlefield. Your heart is his territory. It's what he does. He distracts us from aiming at the right target. And it's up to us to decide, no, you're a liar. I know following God isn't always the easiest thing, but it's the right thing. And James is like really laying into the people here in the letter. You adulterous people. How could you? And then he has this five-word verse. In verse 6. And it's the most important verse in the scripture. And uh, it starts with a but. And it's a big but. No, Debbie, that was last week. <laughs> Not, it's the B-U-T. Yeah, but. It's a big but. All right? We're fallen, we're broken, we're empty, we can't fulfill ourselves, but God gives more grace. Woo! That's the gospel right there. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, what does that look like? What does it look like for God to give us grace? How does, how does that happen? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility. That's the way of Jesus. Humility. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself is literally James telling us to put ourselves under the military rank of Jesus to take a step down the ladder and give him authority in our life. And then if we resist the enemy, the enemy will flee from battle. And he tells us 
to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I mean, doesn't that sound good? Because every time we come to this target and we, we try to satisfy ourselves, right, it feels like the target keeps moving. Like, it feels like it just evades us. The things of this world, the, our pleasures, our selfish desires, they, they evade us, right? We can't ever get enough of them, and then they, they move. God's not like that. You draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Like, get closer to the target. God is our target. Get closer to him, and you'll be able to see, oh, wait, this whole thing was a charade. It's right there. And God's like, nah, like I'm not going to run away from you. I'm right here. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. I mean, uh, listen, if you don't believe me, you can try it. I promise you, the idols of this world will keep moving the target. Get that job you dreamed of. Elevate to that place in your career. Finally begin bringing in six figures. Not enough. All of a sudden, you need the corner office. You desire the next promotion. You just can't get enough success to fulfill you. Go ahead. Buy the boat. Buy the fancy sports car. Keep up with the Joneses. I promise the Joneses are fast. They'll always outrun you. Always can find someone who has bigger, better stuff who's just going to keep you chasing. Uh, finally, you, you did it. You got that relationship you've been praying for, swiping for, searching for, dating for, terrible dating for. You got it. It's here. Place your trust in that. Try it. It'll fail you. Once you're there long enough to, to realize that that person has flaws and warts just like you, they're not the image you built up in your head, and if you try to place your trust in them, it all comes crumbling down. Keep logging hours at the front lines of the culture war. Just feverishly typing away. Facebook comments, quarreling with people that you don't even know. Your face buried too deep in scrolling news lines and doom and gloom that you forgot to look up to see if Jesus is even fighting with you. It's empty. You can't win. If you're looking for issues in the world, you're always going to find more to complain about. Stop. Get closer to the actual target. When we finally decide that we don't need those things to determine our worth, we can finally start investing our life in something that's actually worth it. A.W. Tozer says it like this. Uh, down the line a little bit. Yeah. A.W. Tozer, he says it like this. It start, the, the quote starts that the cure is faith. The cure is faith. Trust in God till the light returns. Should the sense of remoteness persist in spite of prayer and what you believe, 
is faith? Look to your inner life for evidence of wrong attitudes, evil thoughts, or dispositional flaws. These are unlike God and create a psychological gulf between you and him. Put away the evil from you. Believe, and the sense of nearness will be restored. God was never far away in the first place. He was never far away in the first place. We were just looking to the wrong target. Tozer sums it up like this. He says, nearness is likeness. Nearness is likeness. You want to be near to God, be like him. That's why when James tells us to draw near to God, he also says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He continues in verse 9, and he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. You're like, thought you said this following Jesus stuff was fun. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility simply says this. I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm broken. And I'm not God. I'm not good, and I can do nothing to fix the situation I'm in. I need a new Lord, a new Savior. See, I'm convinced that one of the problems in the American church is that we're not comfortable with our sin. And we haven't stopped to think that maybe our sin is far worse than we'd fear. But God's grace is greater than we could ever hope. That the ways in which we're broken are actually far worse than we're even aware of. And we desperately need the grace of God to give us hope. And that takes an attitude of humility to say, I'm not good. I'm not God. I can't fix this. And James tells us that that type of humility demands a complete reversal of your life, right? Be wretched, your laughter to tears, your joy to despair. Completely turn your life around and repent of the way you've been living. That's what humility requires of you. Verse 13, James says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get again. For you are a mist. You don't know what your tomorrow holds. What is your life? What even is it? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We have such little time on this life. And so James is trying to get us to understand that saying things like, I'll go here and I'll do this and I'll make all these plans and, and, I'll, and, and I'll make this much money and I'll do this. That's just arrogant presumption. It's just arrogant presumption that assumes that you're the Lord of your life and you're in control. In the book of John, we're told not to love the things of the world. First John, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The pride of life. 
the arrogant presumption that we're in control of our own destinies and that we have earned the things that we have. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll do it. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And, and this word for boasting is, uh, is about this braggart soldier, this soldier who's on the, on the front lines, right, doing the warfare that actually overestimates his ability. An imposter that sees himself as greater than he actually is. Someone who runs out in front of their general and doesn't pay any credence to their marching orders. It's how we live our lives, right? Like we're just like, we're like we go before God. Like we're like, ah, I'll pray about it later. I gotta get this done. You're, being, you're not moving on my timetable, God. Like, this is when I wanted to be married. This is when I wanted kids. This is when I wanted this job. This is when I wanted to be settled. You're not moving quickly enough for me, so I'll get there. Once I'll get there, we'll get right together, okay? It's arrogance. It's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. Instead, James calls us to humble submission over this arrogant presumption. And it's simply this. You're not in control you're not in control of your life. Yes, you have a free will, and you get to choose how you spend your life, but you're not in control of the outcome. Life is short. Life is fragile, so you might as well live it for God. You're a mist. Here one day, gone the next. Why don't you spend it on something that actually matters in eternity instead of spending it on frivolous thing that fades away when you fade away? If it's the Lord's will, we'll do it. Pastoring college students, I get this question all the time. Jake, I'm, I'm just really trying, man. I'm trying in my life to do the right thing, and I just need to know the answer to this one really important question. How do I discern the will of God? And I'm like, uh-oh, I'm not, that's above my pay grade. I do not, I don't know the will of God. I'm not in his brain. But I know what he's told us his will is. It tells us in this passage that you would humbly submit to Jesus as Lord and give your life to him. You do that, the rest of your life will figure itself out. You humbly submit to him as Lord. You chase after him. You draw near to him and give your life for him and not for yourself. You're going to be in the will of God. No matter what job you have, no matter who you're with, that's where the will of God is. Just submit to him. Your will be done. Don't squander your vapor on frivolous things like selfish desires, petty fights, property, privilege. Invest your mist in something that actually matters. First John, again, says, the world passes away and the lust of it. That pride of life, it all passes away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You want to know how to make your mist last? You want to know how to make your mist matter? Give it to God, and you'll abide forever. And this is what's really interesting. 
He ends the passage in verse 17 this way. Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. It's Harmontano. You know where the bullseye is. But you keep shooting at other targets. You miss the mark. Instead, what if we humbled ourselves? God will exalt us. Those who fall into rank under the lordship of Jesus and carry out his will, who march according to his battle orders, they will hit the mark. Their lives will be defined by Tunkano. People will look at you and be like, Some, something's different. You seem fulfilled and, and satisfied, but all I see you doing is like being generous with your stuff and serving others. What is that about? I mean, I just, I'm just trying to be humble. I'm humbling myself before the Lord. Tunkano, I'm hitting the mark that God has designed for me. And the promise is that the world fades away and your life is but a breath. You'll abide forever. So four questions this morning. To what have you given your heart? Who's the highest bidder in your life that has control of your heart at this moment? And where in your life do you have divided allegiances? Where have you split your heart into pieces and you're giving it out and like you're, you're acting like you're, you're doing the church thing, right? You're acting like you're living for God, but then when you're not here, you're far from him. How are you spending your mist? How are you investing it? What, what are you doing to make sure that your mist lasts beyond, beyond you? And then finally, who's the Lord of your life? Who are you submitting your life to? Who's leading and who's following? Let's pray. Father God, would you give us a heart that desires the things you desire? That what's what you want? which is to give our lives to you and to let you handle the rest. God, would you give us that type of heart? We know because you promise in your word that you, you're true to it. And so we trust that. We surrender our lives to you this morning. We submit to your authority and we say, if you will it, we'll do it. So God, whatever you will, Make it true of our lives.